I'll tell you one of the other things I am really excited about. How many of you have been to Costco recently? I went there Friday. You know what was great about Costco? Christmas trees. Come on now. It's officially Christmas season, right? I have been listening to Christmas music for the last three days. I have no shame in admitting that. I love the Christmas season. Christmas is full of joy, right? I love Christmas because of the joy. In fact, let me ask you this. Uh, What is your favorite Christmas movie? Anybody got a favorite? Anybody got a favorite Christmas movie? Uh, I wrote some down. Polar Express. We loved watching that with the kids. It was one of those that blew us away. Um, Miracle on 34th Street's a, a, a classic. Um, I grew up watching Home Alone. Kevin! Uh, my mom used to say that to me. It's another story. But the best of the best Christmas movie, hands down, Elf, right? Elf. Elf is the best. And I think, I think one of the reasons that makes Elf so good is Buddy the Elf is full of so much joy, Right? Have you ever, you ever found how joy is just contagious? Like when you're around somebody who just has joy, you're just like, man, I love being around that person because joy is just so powerful and valuable. In fact, us as Christians, did you know that we are commanded to be a people full of joy? In fact, you can look through scripture. I wrote some of these down. Matthew chapter 5 says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Luke chapter 6 says, rejoice, this is the day, rejoice in this day and leap for joy. Philippians chapter 3 says, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We are to be a people that are full of joy. In fact, when we realize how contagious joy is, it makes sense that we should be a people known for joy, right? It makes sense with how contagious it is. But can we just have a little honest conversation? We Christians are not always known for our joy, are we? Uh, in fact, uh, the, um, the filmmakers, the Irwin brothers, these guys make Christian movies. They made the movie, I can only imagine, some other uh, more popular Christian movies. They made a movie in, in uh, around like 2014 called Mom's Night Out. Okay, I did not see that movie because it's a chick movie. So I just got to clarify that. But uh, this movie was reviewed by the CNN religion blog, and this is what they said. This is what CNN had to say about this movie, this Christian movie. They said, these filmmakers aim to do what no other Christian major movie picture does, make you laugh on purpose. You see, evidently, according to CNN, us Christians, we're not known for our joy. We're not known for our happiness. We're not known for our humor. What are we known for? Why are we not known for joy? Oftentimes, I would say for many of us, we say joy is a little bit elusive to us. For some of us, we've been through some past stuff that has robbed us of our joy, right? For some of us, we carry scars and wounds and ancient struggles and baggage from the past that if we're being honest, it robs us of the joy in the present, right? And then there are others of us that I would say most of us fall into this category where we say our joy is not a contagious joy. Our joy is a contingent joy, right? Where we say, I could be joyful if these circumstances changed, right? So if you're a student, 
I would be joyful if I could just graduate. If I graduated, then I'd have joy. If you're a single person, I would have joy if I would finally get married. And guess what happens when you get married? Then it changes. Well, I would have joy if I could just have kids. And guess what happens when you have kids? I would have joy if they would just move out of the house. And then they move out of the house. And you'd say, I would have joy if they would just come home to visit. Joy is contingent on something else. Let's just be honest. Our joy is contingent. Well, if I had a little bit more money, if I could finally retire, then I'd have joy. I'd have joy if we could get a new president. I'd have joy if this pandemic would come to an end. Anybody else find themselves in that situation where you look at your joy and think, man, if I could just get here, then I'd be happy. My joy is contingent. I know that's where I find myself oftentimes, is joy just seems out there. If I could just get there, then I'd have it. But I was challenged this week looking at Psalms chapter 118 that says, This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. The psalmist says, This is the day, not tomorrow, not some other time when my, when my circumstances change, when my situation is better. He says, This is the day. If we're going to know no joy, it has to be today because this is the day the Lord has made. This morning, we're going to be looking in 1 Peter chapter 1. Last week, we started, a couple weeks ago, we started a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And again, I want to have that conversation when we ask, what are we known for? Because the world around us is confused. The world around us is struggling. They're hurting. They're fearful. And the question I'm wrestling with is, is what is the message the world hears from us as, at church? And I'm not talking about the message we preach on Sunday morning or the cute little Bible verses we post on social media. What is the world hearing from you and I and our character and how we live? See, Galatians 5 says that when we walk in the Spirit, when we abide with Christ, when we live for Him, that there become these fruit that are increasingly characterized in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That as we, as we walk in the Spirit, these things become evident in our lives. These are the things that Christians are known for. And I, I don't know, but any, anybody else in here over the last couple, anybody else challenged in your life when you consider the fruit of the Spirit? Maybe, maybe it's just me. In fact, this past week, I was in this conversation and somebody was a little bit snarky with me. They're a little, you know, a little sour. And I, I'll, I'll tell you what I did. I give it right back to them. Oh, yeah, you want some of that? I'll give it back to you. And then I thought, dang it, dang it. I'm supposed to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. And it was a reminder to me. My flesh says, you treat me wrong. I'm going to give it right back to you. But the fruit of the Spirit says I'm supposed to be known for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I had to stop and repent. In fact, my prayer through the last couple of weeks, I, I shared this a couple of weeks ago. This is a prayer that John Stott used to pray, and I've stolen it. He used to pray and say, Holy Spirit, I pray this day that you would fill me with yourself and you would cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is my prayer. For me, that is my prayer for us. 
the Lord would cause these fruit to be evident in our lives. Last week, we talked about how our lives should be characterized by joy, which is a sacrificial giving of ourselves for the good of other people. Today, we get to talk about joy. We get to talk about joy. What is, what is joy? What is joy? Joy is similar to happiness. You think about happiness and you think about great delight. You think about in the enjoyment of life, but it is different than happiness because happiness is based on our circumstances. So like for me, happiness is we entered this weekend and the Mariners had a good chance for the playoffs. Happiness is contingent because then the Mariners lost on Friday night and now we need some help to make it to the playoffs. And so my happiness began to be taken away from me. That's happiness. Joy is not contingent on our circumstances. In fact, here's our working definition of joy this morning. Joy is a positive attitude of great delight that is a result of complete trust that God is in control of our life and the world around us. Joy is similar to the other fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that we just manufacture. It is, it is a gift of God that as we walk in Him, as we walk in the Spirit, as we abide in Christ, He begins to produce joy in our lives. But I'll, again, I just, I want to be honest. Sometimes it feels like joy is a little hard to produce in our lives, right? Many of us, we've got issues in our life. We've got, we've got issues at work. We've got health struggles. We've got concerns with our kids and what our kids are doing. Some of us are dealing with financial struggles. Some of us are dealing with, with relationships that feel like they're, they're difficult. We've got these things in our life that become heavy and difficult, and, and we kind of say, well, how can I have joy in the middle of that? On top of that, you look at what's happening in our world around us, You've got this pandemic that is continuing to create fear and division in our country. We've got an uncertainty of what the future holds for us. Politics are just a mess. And let's just be honest that even as Christians, sometimes it feels like joy is just a little bit out there. It's just a little elusive. We just can't seem to find joy. In fact, I would say that for a lot of us, we're quick to complain. We're quick to talk about the struggles. And that becomes what, we know, what we're known for. Oh, they're just the people that are complaining because they don't like the circumstances. See, first Peter, Peter is writing to a people very much like us. Now granted, the people that first Peter is writing to, these are exiles who've been driven out of their country in modern day Turkey. And for them, it felt like joy is just out of reach to us. For these people, I mean, they had a government that was hostile to Christianity. There was a culture uh, that they were living in that was obsessed with pleasure. Marriages were hard in that culture. People were dealing with sufferings uh, from temptation. And you know, what, you know what Peter's first command of them is? To these people with all these things going around, all these reasons to find joy elusive, he says to them, here's his first command, rejoice. Rejoice. And I wonder, how is that possible? With all the difficulty stuff going around, with all the hardship we deal with, how is it possible for us to have joy? And the answer that Peter gave to them and the answer that Peter is going to give to us 
That if we want to have joy, we have to look back at the past, the present, and the future. And I'm not talking about our past, present, and future. I'm talking about Christ, his past, his present, and his future. Because it's that that enables us, no matter what difficulty we face today, it enables us to rejoice that today is the day that the Lord has made, and we can have joy. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 Man, we're going to kind of go through this text and we're going to jump back and forth between past, present, and future. So just follow along with me as best you can. We'll have some, uh, some clarification things up on the screen behind me. Peter starts in, in verse 3. And he says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Christ, according to his great mercy. And I want you to notice this next word. I want you to notice a past tense. Because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You see the word caused. It is past tense. See, what he is doing is he's pointing backwards to say, uh, uh, he has done this. This has done in the past. This term caused us to be born again. That term born again is the same word that Jesus used in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. When Jesus said, you must be born of uh, water, which is a physical birth, and born of the spirit, which is a spiritual birth. And what he's saying is that you, when you are born again, you, begin, you can become a new creation. I mean, one of, the, one of the questions that we humans always ask, is it possible for people to change? And Peter's saying, yes, because God has caused us to be born again. It is possible for us to be a new person. We don't, we're not always going to be bound by our old habits, by our old sins and old attitudes. We can change. So he looks and said, here's past tense. God has caused us to be born again. But he continues in verse 3. Not only has he caused us to be born again, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Again, he's pointing past tense. The resurrection happened in the past. It is done. It is. And so what, what Peter's doing is he's pointing back to the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin he died and was buried in the grave, and he walked out of the grave so you and I could be made right with God. In fact, this is central to everything that Christianity is all about. It's the resurrection of Jesus. That he went to the cross to, to take our sin upon himself. He died in our place. He was buried, but he's no longer buried. He rose from the grave. That is central to everything that we believe. And Peter says, look, this happened in the past. He's saying, when, 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 when he's saying, God caused us to be born again. He's saying, when Jesus rose from the grave, these things are done. They're completed. We can, be, we, we can count on these things. So, he's talking about past tense. He goes a little bit further. And he's going to talk about a future tense. Verse 3 and verse 4. Peter says, uh, he's caused us to be born again, verse 4, to inheritance. An inheritance, that is a future word. That's not in the past. Inheritance is a future. He says he's caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and kept for heaven. See, that inheritance is pointing to Revelation 21, where we learn about the new heaven and the new earth, where God's going to make all things new, where God will dwell with us, where we will be his people, where he says there'll be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. 
He's talking about the promise of eternity in heaven. Now, here's, here's part of the problem. Sometimes we expect that inheritance right now, right? Sometimes we're like, well, Jesus, I'm following you. I, I, I'm trying to obey you. I want that stuff now. I don't want any more tears right now. I don't want any more pain. I don't want any more death. Jesus, I'm following you. I want the health and, and wealth and prosperity. In fact, there are some preachers that say, hey, you can have that. Your best life right now. Heaven on earth. But here's, here's the thing. It's true. Sometimes we experience uh, some of the beautiful things of, that God could offer in the here and now. Sometimes we get experience a beautiful sunset. We can experience love and peace. But those things are glimpses of the future. They're glimpses. They're meant to help us look forward to the future promise, to the future of our inheritance with Christ in heaven. We don't get to experience all of that today. It is waiting for us in the future when we receive our inheritance from him. So here's Peter saying, hey, here's what Christ has done in the past. He's caused us to be born again. He's resurrected Christ. And now he's saying, here's what's coming in the future, that we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. And he continues in verse 5. He says, you've been born again to inheritance kept in heaven. Verse 5, who by God's power, notice this is happening in the present, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, are being guarded. That's in the present. See, Peter is writing to these exiles that have been driven from their homeland. They're scattered. And naturally, all of us in that situation would begin to think, well, who's looking out for me? I have all this bad stuff happening. Who, who's looking out for me? Does anybody care what I'm going through? I mean, how many of us are quick to have those same feelings when we go through something difficult? How many of us, when life gets hard, relationships struggle, things break, financial problems, how many of us begin to wonder, well, well doesn't God care? Does anybody else care about me? Or we go through a difficult thing and we think, nobody knows what I'm feeling. Nobody understands. Satan is so quick to make us feel all alone. But here's what Peter is saying. Peter's saying, you're not alone because God's power is guarding you. That no matter what you face, no matter what you're going through, God's presence and his power is with you. This is a promise we have from him that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so in the present, we have this promise that his power is guarding us. He's with us. Whatever you're going through, it's not going to destroy you because God's power is with you. He's guarding you. I love it. I love it. You guys getting confused about the back and forth, past, the present, the future? Because he's going to go back to the future in verse 5. He says, you've been born again to an inheritance kept in heaven, who by God's power is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, this is our inheritance in heaven. It's in the future. It's ready to be revealed in the last time. It means it's still far off. How far off is it? We don't know. But Jesus promised He's going to come back and take us to heaven. And so we have this hope that is directed towards that future promise of eternity in heaven. In fact, 
Peter continues to look forward to the future. He says in verses 6 and 7, he says, Though now for a little while we are grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of our faith, uh, more precious than gold tested by the fire, and here's this future word, may be found, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus. See, again, I always want to point this out. I love Scripture because it's so true and real to how life is. I mean, you ever hear that person that's like, oh, I follow Jesus and I have no problems in life and, and life is easy and perfect. Like, like, I love that story, but that's not been my reality. And I love that Scripture talks to my reality where there is difficulty, there is hardship, there is suffering, there is health problems, there is marriage issues, there is addiction, there's, there's issues and suffering that we deal with in our faith. And, you know, faith is kind of a funny thing because anybody can claim to love God. Anybody can look the part of being a Christian. But then when difficulty comes, when hardship comes, that's when we prove whether our faith is real or not. And so Paul, looking towards the future, looking for the future, says when you walk faithfully with God through whatever difficulty you're going through, Whatever hardship, when you walk faithfully with God through that, it results in the praise and glory when Jesus returns. That what we are facing now, whatever hardship, if we're faithful to that, there's a reward from God in the future. And then he gets to verse 10 and 12, 10 through 12. And again, he's going to point us now back to the past. Talking about the prophets of old. He said they prophesied about the grace that is available to us today. Talking about, uh, the, they predicted the sufferings of Jesus. You can look in the book of Isaiah and see just continually the prophet Isaiah foreshadowing, pre predicting the sufferings of Jesus. And verse 12 says that these things were not written for themselves, but they were written for us. So the Old Testament writers they got a glimpse of the Savior. But they get, didn't get to experience that themselves. Because those words in the Old Testament, where we can see about grace and Jesus and the gospel, they're written for us. So that we would learn the beauty of the gospel. So that we would know Jesus. And here's, here's why I want to come to the climax of this whole text. Verse 6. Verse 6, Peter writes, in this, in what? In what God has done for us in the past. In this, in what, in what God has done for us in the past. About the Old Testament, Old Testament prophets pointing us to Jesus. What God has done in the past about causing us to be born again. What God has done in the past through the resurrection of Jesus in this. And not only in this, what Jesus has done, in the, what God has done in the past, but what God is doing in the present. That he is guarding us. We are not alone. So he's writing and says, in this, in what God has done for us in the past, in what God is doing in the present, in this, what God is doing in the future, which is our promise of eternity in heaven, which is a promise that if we are faithful through whatever hardship we're dealing with, we'll be rewarded by God. Paul writes and says, in all of this, in what God has done in the past, in the present, and the future, in this, he says, rejoice. Rejoice, even though now for a little while you'll be grieved by various trials. He says, even in your hardship, 
and your suffering and your difficulty. Even if tomorrow seems bleak. He says we can have joy because of what Jesus has done in the past, what he's doing in the present, and what he's promised us in the future. Because God has revealed his love through us on the cross, because he's alive with us today, because he's coming to take us back into eternity. Because of that, we can have joy today. In fact, here's, here's my little summary of this whole passage. That joy can be experienced today, no matter what difficulty we face, when we live in light of Christ's past, present, and future work on our behalf. No matter what we face, we can have joy because of Christ's work on our behalf. Now, I said last week, I said love is the a, is a most powerful force in the world. And I believe that. And I would say just like that, just like love is the most powerful force, I would say that joy has got to be the most contagious force in the world. Right? And when you put these two fruit together, love and joy, and when you throw in peace, that probably is the most powerful testimony that we as Christians can give to the world around us of who Jesus is. That when we live in joy, that becomes contagious to the people around us. But what is it we've settled for? What is it we're known for? What is the church is known for? Again, what would that CNN blog, what, what would they review and say we're known for? We're known for complaining. We're known for judgment, hypocrisy, morality. Yet we're missing the love, the joy, the peace. See, the early Christians, they understood how significant it was that they were marked by joy. In fact, you look through the book of Acts and you see this again and again and again and again. Acts chapter 5 the leaders of the early church, they had been arrested. They were beaten. And verse 41, after they got beat, it says they rejoiced because God had counted them worthy of suffering disgrace in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 13, the enemies of Christ, they've stirred up uh, persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They've been kicked out of the city. And verse 52 says the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul and Silas, they're imprisoned because of their faith. In verse 25, in the middle of the night, around midnight, Paul and Silas, they are praying and singing hymns to God. You see, joy, 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 joy. Stephen Neal who's an old missionary, he summarized it like this. He said, it was because they were a joyful people that the early Christians were able to conquer the world. See, that ought to be a lesson to us today. Because our joy will impact the world around us. I recognize that joy can feel hard. We're called to, to, to be known for joy, but it's difficult. I think Peter understands how difficult it is. Because Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.8, again in our text, he knows that we often are going to look to our circumstances for joy. He knows so quickly we are to, uh, how quick we are to take our eyes off of the gospel, to forget what Christ has done for us in the past. 
He knows we're quick to forget what God's doing for us in the present. He knows we're quick to take our eyes off eternity in the future. He knows that we struggle with fear and anxiety and relying on our own strength. He knows we have a tendency to complain. So he writes in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 1 Peter 1.8. See, this is true for this entire series on the fruit of the Spirit. We don't manufacture joy on our own. Joy comes as a result of you and I putting our confidence, our hope, and our trust in God because of what he's done for us in the past, because of the fact that he's present with us right now, because of his promises for the future, that we know that God is at work for our good and for his glory. And it's as we, as we abide in the gospel, as we abide in what he's done for us in the past, present, and the future, as we choose to walk in the Spirit, not walking in our own strength and our own wisdom, but as we walk in His Spirit, in light of what He's done for us, that is when we begin to see joy exuding in our lives. Where no longer are we so busy complaining about all the things, but now we can find that delight in life because we know that God is at work. Malcolm Muggeridge, who was an old theologian, Summarize it this way. He can say, he said, I can say I never knew what joy was until I gave up pursuing happiness. You hear that? I never knew what joy was until I gave up pursuing happiness. And I never cared to live until I chose to die. And for these two discoveries, how did he get them? He says, I am eternally grateful to Jesus. Not because he forced those things, not because he tried really hard, because he met Jesus. And as he abided in Jesus, those things became evident in his life. In fact, I'm going to close this morning with a story from Max Lucado, who's a well-known author and pastor. He told a story once about a guy by the name of Robert Reed. Reed uh, grew up with cerebral uh, palsy. If you understand that, uh, his hands were twisted, his, his feet were useless. And because of this disease, he couldn't do things that you and I consider normal everyday things. He couldn't bathe himself. He couldn't brush himself. He couldn't comb his hair. He couldn't, he couldn't feed himself. When he would speak, his speech would kind of uh, drag on, kind of like a worn audio cassette. And for those of you younger, those are the way we used to listen to music. That was a long time ago. He couldn't drive a car. He couldn't go for a walk. So many things that you and I consider like, like everyday part of a life, he could not do any of those things. Yet none of that ever stopped him. It didn't stop him from graduating, graduating high school. His disease, it didn't stop him from going to Abilene Christian School, Christian College, and getting a degree in Latin. His disease, it didn't stop him from teaching at the St. Louis Junior College. His, his, his disease didn't stop him from going on five overseas missions trips in a wheelchair, not able to push himself around. His disease couldn't stop him from becoming a missionary to Portugal. In fact, the story says that when he moved to Lisbon, Portugal, imagine the struggle he had to deal with. 
He had these health issues, and here he is moving into a new country. But none of his difficulties, his hardships, his suffering would not stop him from taking his wheelchair into the park every day. It would not stop him from handing out pamphlets telling about Jesus. It would not stop him from leading 72 people to Jesus over a period of seven years. A man who was so contingent on other people to do everything for him, it would not stop him from telling people about Jesus. Max Lucado told the story of going to a conference and Robert Reed was one of the speakers. And here's Robert Reed, unable to get on the stage on, him, on his own. Had to have men come and lift up his wheelchair and put it on the stage. And with his messed up hands, he tries to grab his Bible. He can't grab his Bible with his hand. So another man comes and, and grabs his Bible and puts it in his lap. And he's taking his finger and he's, he's trying to open up the Bible to the passage he's supposed to be in. And he, he can't quite get there with his hands. Somebody else has to open the Bible for him. And at that moment, Robert Reed could have asked for sympathy. He could have asked for pity. But instead, he holds up his bent hand in the air and he boasts he says, I have everything I need for joy. You and I, we have everything we need for joy in Christ. Everything we need for joy in this life, in this moment, today, is found in Christ's work on the cross in the past. The fact that he is present with us now in the present and the promises we have of eternity in the future. That no matter what we face and what difficulty we are going through, we can live with that quiet confidence and trust in Him because He is working things out for our good and for His glory. And I think about Christians. We're called to be witnesses. We're called to point people to Jesus. We're called to give our lives to the gospel. And imagine how contagious our faith would be. Imagine how contagious we would be to point people to Jesus if we weren't known for our politics and our complaining and how we judge other people and how we criticize the way they live. Imagine how contagious our faith would be if we were known like Robert Reed, we were known for joy. No matter what's going on in my life, and what's happening in our world today, I can still have that joy. I can have great delight the result of putting my complete trust that God is in control of my life and the world around me. I don't know about you, but it makes me excited. It gets me excited to think about what God could do at Restoration Church through us as we choose to walk in the Spirit, as we choose to allow the joy to characterize our lives. Let's pray.